I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, we have two guests tonight that I'm really excited about, beginning with Tanner White. He's a member of the United States Marine Corps, who I met last spring, and who's out in his life as a gay man and out as an HIV-positive man. He created a unique organization to combat the stigma associated with being HIV-positive called A Positive Tomorrow. Tanner is here and will tell us all about it. And then in the second half of the hour, I'll introduce you to Jane Ward. She's a professor at UC Riverside who wrote a book called Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. It's a fascinating read. And all of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, July 24th, 2016. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Last week, the State Board of Education unanimously approved changes in classroom instruction to comply with the Fair and Inclusive Education Act that was signed into law four years ago. It's the nation's first law requiring public schools to include prominent gay Americans and LGBT rights milestones in history classes. Starting in the second grade, California students will learn about families with two moms or two dads. And then two years later, while studying how immigrants have shaped the Golden State, they will hear how New York native Harvey Milk became a pioneering gay politician in San Francisco. The guidelines also touch on topics in the 5th grade and 8th grade, looking at gender roles in the 18th and 19th centuries. A capstone of sorts would come in U.S. government courses where seniors in high school would learn about the 2015 Supreme Court ruling legalizing same-sex marriage nationwide and recent court cases involving bathroom access for transgender students. And in San Diego, Secretary of the Army Eric Fanning, the first openly gay person to lead a branch of the military, struck back at those who claim the armed forces are engaging in a, quote, social experiment by embracing LGBT and women's equality. While speaking at the San Diego Pride celebration last week, Fanning said, quote, Today, our critics say the military is not a place for social experimentation. They may be right, but equality and inclusivity are not experiments. They're American values, end quote. Fanning, the highest-ranking civilian employee in the Army, was also one of the honorary grand marshals of San Diego's Pride Parade held last weekend. And here locally, William Kaiser of Sonoma, whose 16-year-old bisexual son Adam was a suicide victim in 2015, has filed a lawsuit this week against the Sonoma Unified School District and other agencies for the wrongful death of his son. Kaiser charges willful negligence in the wrongful death suit, outlining a series of events that included his son's diagnosis with major depressive disorders, recurrent with psychotic symptoms and suicidal ideation. The suit also alleges that the school district said a safety plan was put in place to mediate bullying and the effects it had on Adam. The plaintiff alleges, quote, no such plan was put in place or that such plan was not enforced by the staff of Sonoma Valley High School and that Adam continued to be bullied. In May of 2015, Kaiser said the school district and the county should have told him Adam was a suicide risk. Shortly after he returned to the care of his father on May 26th, Adam committed a suicidal act that resulted in his death four days later. An impromptu candlelight vigil was held in the Sonoma County Plaza on May 31st, during which time several students called for the recognition of an action against bullying at the high school. Kristen Stormont, then president of the Campus Gay Straight Alliance, said, quote, he was definitely one of the more bullied kids at our school, end quote. Now here's your calendar events for the coming week. On Monday, July 25th at 7 p.m., the Parents of Trans Youth Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. 
And on Tuesday, July 26th at 1.30 p.m., the Santa Rosa Senior Group will meet at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation at the Glacier Center in Santa Rosa. And on Sunday, July 31st at 5 p.m., the Chrysalis Fashion Benefit will happen at the Arlene Francis Center in Santa Rosa. This event will begin with a fashion show of gender-fluid designs by Michael Lee Brandon Powell of Windsor. Dinner will be provided afterwards, and a DJ dance party will close out the evening. Worth Our Weight, a culinary program for out-risk youth, and the Monarch Butterfly Conservation Fund are the beneficiaries. And finally, registration is now open for the LGBT Studies Program at Napa Valley College. Classes meet on Monday nights at 6.30 p.m. starting on August 15th. You can learn more at napavalley.edu. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the latest news headlines, remember our website at OutBeatNews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from OutBeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. OutBeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. This last April, I was honored by the New England Gay Police Officers Association back in Boston, along with my next guest, who I was so impressed with, I had to have him on the show, to talk about the work he's doing to combat the stigma associated with being HIV positive. He's an active duty member of the United States Marine Corps, a proud gay man, and the founder of A Positive Tomorrow. Tanner White, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to have you on the show. And before we get talking about the work you're doing and your career in the Marine Corps, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and a little bit about your coming out story? Well, uh, I was born in Kansas, uh, raised in Texas. I grew up kind of as a southern country boy, going to uh, several different schools. Uh, Joined the Marine Corps, and I ended up coming out around uh, Christmas of 2012. Uh, not too, not really too much to tell there. Uh, when I came out, I was on the phone pretty much all night for several hours with my mom uh, about the entire situation. Now, had you always known that you're gay, or is that something you discovered later in life? It's something that I think I've always known. It's just I tried to push it off. I tried to do several different things, tried to be really involved with church and join Boy Scouts, um, joined the Marine Corps, in essence, to kind of uh, turn myself straight, if you will. Okay. So how did your family react? For the most part, my family reacted fairly well. Uh, I haven't talked to my dad or my stepmom in uh, about six years because of uh, the fact that I'm gay. Uh, my mom accepts me, and everyone on my mom's side of the family is pretty good at accepting me. Some of the family, it's uh, something that's not really talked about, and some family, it's well, the close family, my mom, my grandma, and everyone, they, they really accept who I am. Well, that's good. At least you've got some support on that side of the family, right? Absolutely. So you said you joined the U.S. Marine Corps to overcome being gay. I'm curious about that. Why the Marine Corps? What did you see there? Why not the Army or the Navy or Air Force? To be honest, uh, I had a lot of respect for my step-grandpa. He was a Marine back in Vietnam, and he's someone that I have always wanted to follow in his footsteps and be just as good of a person as he is. So that's probably the largest reason why I chose the Marine Corps as opposed to any other branch. Well, that's cool. Was there any job in particular or task in the Marine Corps that you aspired to in particular? 
I came into the Marine Corps doing exactly what I wanted to do. I do uh, electronics maintenance. Great. Well, it sounds like you got to do exactly what your mind was set on doing. Now, you entered the Marine Corps at a time when Don't Ask, Don't Tell hadn't officially been repealed yet. I mean, there was a track to do so, but still being out and being gay was caused to get you tossed out. You knew you were gay at the time that you enlisted. Were you afraid that if you were discovered that you would be discharged? Honestly, I was a little worried that I might be uh, discovered. But at the same time, like I said earlier, I was joining the Marine Corps trying to turn myself straight. Uh, so I was going in, I hope I wouldn't have too much of a deal, but there was that little bit of a scare that someone would find out. Mm-hmm. So when you heard the news about Don't Ask, Don't Tell being abolished, how did that change your thinking about being out as a gay man? Honestly, uh, I was still scared. I mean, I didn't have to worry about getting kicked out anymore if someone found out, but I didn't know how the Marine Corps would take it. It's something brand new, uh, to the court, and I don't know how everyone else sees the court, but the Marine Corps is slow at adapting to new instances such as this as far as uh, liberties and uh, stuff like that go. Mm-hmm. So it took a little bit for the Marine Corps to kind of catch up to where it needed to be as far as acceptance, and I was af- basically afraid of how I would be treated during that time. Yeah, well, over the years, we've had members of the military on before to talk about their experience. And almost to a person, they've said that their coworkers, the line personnel, have been much more comfortable with having gay colleagues than their superiors. Was that your experience in the Corps? I mean, uh, I got messaging right away that pretty much being gay was not appropriate because I was, at the time, whenever Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, I was in boot camp and... The day it got repealed, we had drill instructors coming in and telling us all about how if there's any faggots in the room, they needed to they can they need to just stay where they are and they don't want to hear about it and everything else. Wow, that must have been devastating when you heard that, uh, even though you anticipated it from what it sounds like. So, how is it for you today? Now that Don't Ask, Don't Tell is gone, what's the environment like for you as an out gay man? Right now, the Marine Corps has pretty much reached a a spot where uh, it's pretty much became accepted no matter where you are. Uh, People either have the respect not to say anything about it or they will, or they either accept it or they just don't say anything about it. Okay. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. We met because you were honored for not only your work in the Marine Corps and your service to the country, but also because of your work in an organization you founded called The Positive Tomorrow. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But in addition to coming out as a gay man, you also came out as someone who is HIV positive. Let's go back to the beginning. Talk about the testing process and what that experience was like for you. Honestly, uh, I had no intention of getting tested. Um, I had tried to donate blood. I've always been avid about trying to donate uh, blood throughout my life. And one day I went and donated blood, and it came back as being HIV positive. They called me, so I went up to the the medical center here on base and told them about that. And I was thinking in my head, denial, and it can't be uh, possible... I didn't think that that would happen to me. And whenever I went up there, they tested me, and 
I was waiting for about a week for the results, and then finally I got I got those, and it confirmed my uh, my worst fears at the time. So you found out about your status after donating blood. Did they tell you at the time that they were going to test your blood for HIV and then get back to you with the results, or was that phone call you got a surprise? That was a surprise phone call. Well, I bet it would have been for anyone. So you're in the Marine Corps now, and you get these results. Uh, what were your first thoughts? What was going through your mind? I was thinking that my career was over. I was wondering how much longer I'd have to live and uh, what kind of sicknesses were going to hit me. Had you known much about HIV before you got the results from that test? Honestly, I knew of HIV, but I didn't know about HIV, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I knew that HIV existed, but it had always been drilled into my head everywhere that I uh, went that HIV is horrible um, and it's a death sentence and you can't, you won't be able to uh, survive. So how did the Marine Corps react? What kind of response did you get? Well, whenever uh, I found out, whenever my results came back, it had to go through my uh, commanding officer. He was the one that had to disclose the results to me. And he was very supportive. They, uh, My entire chain of command at the time was very supportive, actually. They got me down to the, uh, the infectious diseases department at the Naval Hospital, made sure that I was taken care of and everything else. So the, they, they really took great care of me uh, throughout my diagnosis. And then every time, every command that I've had, every leader that I've gone to and told about it, they've been really supportive of me and pretty much asked me, well, if there's anything that you need or just let us know. We don't know much about this, so we're kind of relying on you to tell us what you need. So it's kind of a... Uh, I have a lot of support within the Marine Corps. Well, that's really great. I'm surprised to hear that because I wouldn't have anticipated you getting that type of response, but I'm pleased to hear that. But is that what you expected to hear? Were you expecting to get so much support? Honestly, no, I didn't anticipate that at all. Okay. And so the Marine Corps is responsible now for providing you with the medical care that you need and your treatment for HIV. How have you found the doctors to be? Are they knowledgeable? Were they prepared to treat you? And what's your care been like? Absolutely. Um, there's only three hospitals here in the well in the Navy that will treat HIV patients. And so they have specialists there for infectious diseases, and they're very knowledgeable about HIV and about how to keep yourself uh, healthy. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're getting the, the best care that's available. So one of the stories that I saw about you that I really love is when you invited country music star Steve Grand to the Marine Corps Ball. How did that come to be? Well, I mean, to be completely honest, what got my mind on that was me and a, a friend of mine were sitting on my living room couch, and we were talking about how our favorite uh, country singers and everything, and he was like, well... If I if he was telling me he's like I'm going to ask Steve Grant out to the to the ball and I told him no you don't no you won't you don't have the balls to do so and he was like yeah you're right I don't and so I told him I bet I do and then it, it kind of ended up as a uh, kind of as a who has the uh, who's who's brave enough to do it kind of mm-hmm. thing and so I went up got on got on uh, YouTube asked him out and. 
actually ended up having an amazing night with him. He seems like a extremely nice person, very respectful. And uh, that was actually a really awesome night of my life. So, well, Let's take a listen to that YouTube you made, that invitation that you put out there on the web to Steve Grand to be your date to the Marine Corps Ball. This video is for the all-American all boy, Steve Grand. Steve, you're an amazing singer. I've seen some of your blog videos, and they were awesome. I would like for you to go with me to the 2015 Marine Corps Ball in November, hosted in Wilmington, North Carolina, as my date. Hopefully you say yes. Uh, if not, it was worth a shot. So, please help me get this video out, and hopefully I'll be going to the ball with Steve Grand this year. And here's Steve's response. Hello, Sergeant White. Steve Grand here. I want to say that I'm honored to accept your invitation to be your date at the Marine Corps Ball this November. Thank you so much for your service to this country, and I look forward to a really fun evening with you in November. See you soon, buddy. Well, I know from other friends of mine that the Marine Corps Ball is really a very big event. It's a, it's a major event every year for the Marine Corps. But... I mean, I got to ask, were you a little surprised that he responded and said, yes, I'll come and be your date? I was kind of surprised that he responded, actually, because I figured I didn't even I didn't even know if the message would reach him. <laughs> mm -hmm. So tell us what the reaction was. What was it like? I mean, this is a traditional Marine Corps event. You show up with not only a man on your arm, but Steve Grand. What was it like? It was pretty amazing. I mean... I honestly wouldn't have traded anything for that night. That was, it was definitely one of my most memorable nights of my life. I bet. And how did your colleagues react? Uh, they were all great about it. They sat next to us. They joked around with us just like they would any, uh, anyone else. It wasn't even recognized. That it, no one even had to recognize that I was there with someone of the same sex. It was they acted like it was just a normal, everyday thing that they see all the time. How cool is that? Good for you. So let's talk about your organization. I think for most men, when they find out they're positive, their attention really focuses inward, and rightfully so. It's about learning about HIV, the treatments, and how to keep themselves healthy. But you not only did that, but you also decided to be proactive and to do something to combat the stigma that HIV-positive men suffer. And you created a new nonprofit organization called The Positive Tomorrow. Where did you get inspired to do that? Where did the motivation come from? Honestly, uh, you heard the speech that I gave out at the uh, banquet, um, and one of then the very first part of my speech, I told you there's three main people that have kind of got me to where I am today. There's my grandpa John, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, as we were talking, he's the one that kind of made me into who I am as far as joining the Marine Corps. Then I have another uh, friend, Will Means, who pretty much taught me that HIV isn't something to be feared, and it's no longer a death sentence. Um, and then Russ McCabe and I became friends while he was here at uh, in Jacksonville. And we were talking, and we, we started talking about my, my status and me uh, wanting to kind of start giving back and helping out. And so he kind of started pushing towards maybe doing a YouTube channel. And I thought that was a great idea. So I allowed him to talk me into starting my YouTube channel. I did that. 
and after a little bit, I felt like, yes, I was helping people, but I didn't feel like I was doing enough to help people. And so, to me, my next step would be create a nonprofit organization that's getting out there and has a broader reach, more people able to band together under an organization to uh, put more feelers out there and help more, more and more people. So talk about the mission and the goals of A Positive Tomorrow. Our goals, we have enough organizations out there that are trying to do research and find a cure and new ways of treatment for HIV. But there are not enough organizations out there that are focusing on the stigma of HIV. So my organization, our goals are to fight the stigma of HIV. We want to educate the public about HIV, and we want to provide support to anyone who's affected by HIV. That includes those that are HIV positive, people who are dating people who are HIV positive, or married to people who are HIV positive, and even people who have uh, parents or sons and daughters or brothers and sisters who are positive. Because we got to realize, even though becoming HIV positive is hard for the individual, it can also be hard for the family that surrounds them. Well, I think you're right. And it's not just family. It's our close friends and anybody who is going to worry about us. But one of the things I remember you talking about related to the stigma associated with being HIV positive is that it can result in a form of bullying. Talk more about that. Because when you sit here and you are able to look at someone and say, it was your fault that you got HIV, or you look at someone and say, you got what you deserved, that is bullying. And nobody should have to go through something like that. Yeah, well, that's particularly common from conservative religious leaders, right? They're always the first ones out there to say that it's your fault and that it's God's way of punishing you for being gay. And, you know, those kinds of comments can be particularly devastating. But the HIV virus has been around now for 35 years, and there is so much information out there about it. And yet the fear around HIV is still great. And I think the stigma exists not only in the straight community, but it's it's still very present in the gay community. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's still so much misinformation about HIV? I think the stigma is out there for the most part because, yes, we have avenues of education out there, but nobody is going to take the initiative to go seek out those avenues of education. And the one way that I think we need to educate people is do it while they're in school, as they're growing up. Put it as part of sex education that is required in schools uh, as kids are growing up. And a lot of education officials don't do that because of the stigma of HIV. They don't want to teach about HIV. And all of that is going to do is continue to add to the stigma and keep people um, unaware of what it actually is. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think public schools in particular are way behind the curve on public education. And and talking to students about HIV is not a gay thing. It's something that everybody, straight, gay, bisexual, no matter how you identify, needs to be educated and informed about. And I think a failure to do so puts students at risk. Exactly. Well, let's get back to you for a second. After you found out you were positive, talk about the struggle that you had getting back into the dating scene. I've heard from a lot of guys that, you know, even years after being positive, that it's still a very difficult subject to broach when you meet someone new. 
What was it like for you, and what advice can you offer men who are positive or just found out that they're positive in terms of handling that conversation with someone new that they're meeting? Honestly, when I first got diagnosed, I wasn't even I was I wasn't even thinking about wanting to uh, do anything else because I was so disgusted with my own body. Um, but then, as I started getting comfortable with my own body, I still kept staying away from people because of the exact, this exact issue. I didn't know how to go about telling someone I was positive. I didn't want to face that rejection from people. So uh, over time, I, I kind of started talking to other people who are positive. And for myself, I've found that the easiest way for me is just as soon as I start talking to someone, lay it right out there at, uh, at the very beginning. Because if someone's going to reject me at the very beginning because of my HIV status, then I don't think that they are worth my time and my effort in order to uh, see a relationship try and work out. And if they're going to be so closed-minded that they don't want to be with me because of my relationship status, then I don't want to be with them anyway. So for you, how did you make that shift? How did you go from, as you said, being disgusted with your own body to having such confidence about telling men right up front? Honestly, it was a matter of reaching out to other people who are HIV positive. That's one of the things why I like the way the Navy works with us, because every six months we're required to go up and uh, do an evaluation. Well, part of those evaluation is they put you in a group that has about 12 other uh, people who are HIV positive, and you sit there in that group and you talk to each other, you get to know each other and network with each other so that you, you know other people who are positive, you talk to each other about your experiences while you're in that group, and you kind of learn a little bit about what, one, what HIV is, is, two, you learn how to act and everything when different circumstances arise, and you can kind of share advice with each other about different things. Great. Well, again, good for the military for providing that kind of support for you. It's obviously made a huge difference. So you have our listening audience out there. What do you want them to know about HIV? I just want you to know that basically if you contract HIV, HIV is no longer a death sentence. And two, as long as you are taking precautions, you're on PrEP, you're using condoms, then there's almost a zero chance of you catching it all. There's really nothing to be feared uh, about HIV anymore. And for those people who do still have a tremendous fear about HIV, what advice do you have for them? Honestly, for me, whenever I go to facing any of my fears, no matter what it is, is just to face it head on. Um, when dealing with HIV, just talk to someone who you know is knowledgeable about it. Do some research online. Uh, there's several different websites out there like thebody.com or aids.gov that have plenty of good information for people to learn exactly what HIV is, how it's transmitted, and how to protect yourself. It's all about getting informed, right? So talk about a positive tomorrow. Where do you want to take the organization? I want a positive tomorrow to be the leading organization as far as HIV stigma goes. We will lead this nation into a stigma-free era where no one has to worry about disclosing their HIV status. No one has to worry about people at work finding out about their HIV status because they know that it's all right. 
an awesome goal for sure. And let's hope that you're able to accomplish that mission. So talk about your life after the Marine Corps. What's your vision for your future? After the Marine Corps, I hope to transition from the Marine Corps to working with A Positive Tomorrow full-time. I feel like if I can donate all of my time to A Positive Tomorrow instead of just working on it after work and on weekends, then we can do so much better work. Pretty admirable, my friend. Pretty admirable. So tell us where we can go to learn more about you and the organization A Positive Tomorrow. My YouTube channel is easily found. You can just search my name, Tanner White, on uh, YouTube. It's usually one of the first couple of results that pop up. Um, a Positive Tomorrow also is also on YouTube. If you search A Positive Tomorrow, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And, of course, we have our own website at apositivetomorrow.org. Perfect. And if you missed any of those websites, we'll have them on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. We've been talking with United States Marine Corps Sergeant Tanner White. He's the founder of A Positive Tomorrow. Tanner, congratulations on all of your accomplishments. Thank you so much for serving our country and for serving and supporting those with HIV. Thank you, Greg. If you're just joining us, this is Outbeat News In-Depth on KRCB Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. And before we get to our next guest, I'd like to remind you that our summer fundraiser ends tomorrow. And if you love tuning into Outbeat Radio here each week on KRCB, this is your opportunity to show us some love this summer by making a tax-deductible donation right now. In fact, if you call me with a pledge of $120, I'll give you two tickets to this year's Art for Life event benefiting face-to-face here in Sonoma County. So don't wait any longer. Now's your time to share your summer love with us. Give me a call right now, 707-584-2020. That's 584-2020. Well, many gay men have had a long-time fascination with straight men, especially those straight men who have sex with other men, yet identify as straight. Jane Ward is an associate professor of women's studies at UC Riverside and has studied this phenomenon. She's here to talk about her new book, called Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. Professor Ward, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, this is a really interesting book, uh, but before we get talking about not gay, uh, talk about what brought you to research the subject of straight men who have sex with other men. Sure. Well, I'm a sociologist by training, and I'm also a professor of gender and sexuality studies, and I've been studying queer culture and politics for about 15 years. I myself am queer. And in recent years, I've become especially interested in the evolution of sexual identity categories and specifically how people make sense of the boundaries between categories like gay, straight, and bisexual. Because, you know, the thing about these categories 
is that they're helpful in a lot of ways, but they they also inevitably fail to capture the full complexity of human sexuality, particularly because it turns out that people often engage in sex practices that don't actually match their sexual identification, like when straight identified people engage in same-sex sex. And, you know, when this happens, there's a tendency in the broader culture for people to be confused and to want to explain this, um, what seems to them like a contradiction, by, you know, just drawing one on, on whatever other contextual information they might have, like the race and gender of the participants in the sexual encounter. So, you know, when straight young women hook up with other young women, we tell one kind of story about that and what that means. And when straight black men have sex with other straight black men, we tell a different story about what that means. And the one group that's sort of flown under the radar in these conversations about heterosexual fluidity and about the down low is straight white men. And so as a scholar of sexuality, I have observed for several years now that we have not been thinking about the complexity of straight white men's sexuality in the same way that we've been thinking about the complexity of women's sexuality and the sexuality of men of color. And so I wanted to know why that was, which is what brought me to the project. Fascinating. And, and so talk about some of the differences. You mentioned straight white men versus straight men of color. What were some of the differences that you discovered between those two groups? Yeah. So, you know, it's not so much that the sex that white, straight white men and straight black men have is different. It's that the cultural narratives about what straight black men are doing is very different from the narratives that we tell, the story we tell about what straight white men are doing when they have sex with men. So the story about black men on the down low, at least um, according to social scientists and public health officials and journalists and all the other commentators that have been interested in the down low, um, so the story is that these men are closeted. They're gay or bisexual men who basically are lying to themselves and to their wives and girlfriends, and that they're doing this because black culture, this is, or so the story goes, black culture is so hyper homophobic that black men cannot be honest about their ostensibly real sexual orientation. And so then added to this fear um, that black men is this is this other concern that black men on the down low are transmitting HIV to unsuspecting wives or girlfriend, you know, women partners, mm-hmm. and you get basically yet another representation of black men um, as having dangerous predatory sexuality, which is a story that white people have been telling about black men for hundreds of years uh, in the U.S. Now, in contrast, the story about white men who have sex with men is that there there basically is no story. Mostly no one has talked about about the sex that straight white men have with each other or they have cast these sexual encounters as not sexual at all, but simply about boys being boys. And so, as I describe in the book, straight white men's sex with each other often takes the form of um, vulgar and homophobic joking, uh, hazing or initiation of one another, drunken or daredevil stunts. And so paradoxically, you know, straight white men often touch each other sexually to to prove just how straight and masculine they are. Um, and 
and what I wanted to show is that all of these commentators, psychologists, sexologists, other social scientists, the media, have been much more generous and forgiving with their interpretation of straight white men's homosexual encounters. They often just sort of dismiss them as developmental or just circumstantial or something that doesn't really have a lot of meaning. And certainly no one suggests that when straight white men have sex with men, that that they're doing so in ways that are racialized or that are specific to white culture. No one asks, what's going on in white culture that's making, you know, young white boys touch each other like this? But, um, of course, it is something about white culture. And so that's what I wanted to draw attention to. Fascinating stuff. And you talk about the term or you use the term heteroflexibility. Um, You know, I think men and women both have traditionally been less threatened by straight women who you know, share a kiss or engage in some sexual mm-hmm. contact. Uh, but that really hasn't been the, the case for men. You know, we've seen people employ the gay panic defense as an excuse for right. you know, beating up someone and for, and for hate crimes. But there's a new generation out there that has some, some very different attitudes. Their identification and, and their understanding of sexuality is much more fluid. Yeah, so... You know, the way that I think about this is that mainstream culture, the dominant culture, provides all straight people with certain loopholes, so to speak, for engaging in homosexual contact and retaining their straight status. So a straight-identified woman can hook, can hook up with another woman as long as this encounter is a show for male spectators. So the primary loophole that straight women are given is, you know, if, if, this, if this is in the service of heterosexuality, if this is a gift for your boyfriend or husband, you know, <laughs> for his birthday, <laughs> or if you are out at a club and you're doing sort of a sexy dance or sharing a kiss, you know, and men are watching, then, then this can be understood understood as meaningless in the sense that it does not, it's not going to call into question your heterosexuality. Now for straight men, especially for white men, the loophole is different. Uh, Homosexual touching is possible for men if it's understood to be part of a homophobic joke, um, part of a sort of drunken stunt, a part of an initiation, um, something men do out of deprivation or, you know, uh, you know, lack of access to women. That's sometimes the the narrative. So gender, um, really shapes whether and when people straight identified women and men are able to make sexual contact with other with people of the same sex but in both cases i argue this homosexual contact again paradoxically is serving the interests of heterosexuality it's strengthening heterosexuality more than it is expanding it or subverting it because it's really getting kind of just folded into this story about how women really, you know, everything they do sexually is for men. And when men touch each other sexually, but in the context of like domination or hazing or homophobia, that doesn't subvert um, heterosexuality or really liberate it. It just kind of um, uh, reinforces the same old story about the rigidity of these categories. Interesting. So talk about how people identify themselves and their sexual orientation and the limited number of words that we have. Do you think that the words are getting in the way of people finding acceptable contact with uh, people of the same gender? 
In other words, is is the word gay and homosexual what's getting in the way of men engaging in sex with other men? Well, I mean, maybe, you know, if the words didn't exist, if the words gay or homosexual didn't exist, then straight men wouldn't exist because these sexual categories are all defined in relation to one another. And, and it's the words themselves, at least from, from my perspective, and I think many scholars of sexuality, we recognize that our sexual desires and our sexual identities take shape in a cultural context. And so it's the words themselves that shape how we understand ourselves. So, you know, what I, what I argue in, in Not Gay is that what we now know is that all people have homosexual sex. We know, of course, that gay, lesbian, bisexual people do. But it turns out that straight women also do and straight men also do, which basically means that humans, you know, have homosexual sex. But what distinguishes us is the meaning that we attribute to that sex uh, and how we want that sexual contact to be perceived. And so what I argue sets straight people apart from gay or bi or queer people isn't whether or not they have ever had homosexual sex. It's that they're it's that they're very invested in heterosexuality, in the culture of heterosexuality. The culture of heterosexuality and heteronormativity feels like home to them. It feels like a good fit to them. They, they don't want to be perceived as weird or an outsider. They don't want their sexuality to feel political or different. So uh, to me, it's less about the words as it is about, you know, when we look at straight people's, um, you know, uh, uh, border crossing sexual behaviors, their sexual behaviors that seem to be fluid or flexible or changing the rules of the game, are they doing it because they're actually willing to identify with queerness in some kind of way, to think about their sexuality in a more expanded way, to see that their sexuality is political, or are they doing it in a way that simply reinforces that they're on top, that they're the normal ones? Mm -hmm. and, and you explore several reasons why straight men particularly have sex with other men and one of the ones that caught my eyes was your theory of heteroexceptionalism. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. So hetero heteroexceptionalism is the term that I use in the book to describe when straight people, women or men, engage in homosexual sex, but they, they view their homosexual sex as an exceptional case, something that doesn't mean anything about them, something that is um, – fleeting and insincere and should not have any emotional or political consequences. And so the way that straight people are able to exceptionalize their homosexual contact this way is by imagining that gay, lesbian, and bisexual people are people who, for whom homosexual sex is all about love and marriage and having kids and romance, and that those are, you know, those people are the real queers. And straight, where straight people, you know, maybe just sometimes get drunk and freaky with somebody of the same, of the same sex, but it doesn't really mean anything. Um, and so that's that's what I mean by heteroexceptionalism, which I think is really um, 
you know, it, on the surface, it could look like a, a, a progressive move or a broadening out of heterosexuality, but it really reinforces, again, this binary between straight and queer, with straight being, again, the normal category and queer being this other category that needs special protections and um, uh, that you know, might be discriminated against and, and with straight people feeling like that, none of that has anything to do with them, whether they have homosexual sex or not. Hmm. You talk a lot about, you know, you cite several sources of history, uh, in the book. Uh, but how did you do the research about what's happening in today's world? Yeah, so many people have mistakenly thought that this book is based on interviews with, with straight white men. And it's not, it's a book that, um, looks at multiple cultural case studies, cases that have been examined by historians or journalists and have um, in, in some way illuminate something about what the culture believes about the meaning of men, straight men, sex with other men. So I look at cases of um, sex between straight identified white men in bars, in biker gangs. I look at the Hell's Angels, uh, cases from public bathrooms, the military, fraternities, online personal ads. So I'm, I'm really trying to do kind of a broad cultural survey of this practice and what, what people think it means. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I'll just take one example from the book, which is um, an initiation ritual in the, in the Navy called Crossing the Line. And it is uh, an initiation that's been happening in the Navy for many decades. It um, is when new sailors are aboard ship and they cross the equator for the first time. This, you know, um, triggers this initiation ceremony uh, that is focused largely on sailors shoving food, grease, um, objects in one in in new sailors' anuses, and then requiring you know other new sailors to who are being initiated to eat it out, retrieve it in different kinds of ways. Um, in the book, I show that this kind of contact, even though we might think it's shocking, is actually quite common in all male institutional environments, in boarding schools and fraternities, um, in various military institutions, not just in the U.S., but um, you know, around the world, in prisons. And so one of the questions in the book is, you know, why, why is it that whenever men get together, straight men get together with other straight men in all male environments, that they feel such a strong desire to touch each other's anuses. So that's one question. <laughs> but the other question is, you know, um, why is it that this practice is so invisible, that it's, it's, so, uh, it's, so, it's kept so secret, we don't talk about it? And to the extent that we do talk about it, we tend to explain it away by looking at the very particular circumstances of a given institution. Like, well, oh, that's only happening in prisons because there are no women in prisons. Okay, well, it's also happening in fraternities. And fratern college fraternities are not a place where men are denied access to women. So when, so I wanted to look at, you know, let's look at all of these cases and see if we can come to understand, you know, what it means that, that men are so frequently wanting to touch each other's bodies. It was, I was even surprised to read some of the things that you had in, in the book. 
um, <laughs> and, and some of the the scripts, as you call them, right. uh, that explain away this activity. You know, as you're looking at some of the the Craigslist ads that you explore and some of these traditions, what are a couple of them that stand out to you that were most surprising? Well, there are a number of them, and I, I think you know I'll just name a few of them, and then I'll I'll share with you which one I think is most surprising. So you know, a theme that comes up a lot in men's stories about why straight men stories about why they have sex with other men is that it's necessary in some way. Um, sometimes the story of necessity is about deprivation. Well, you know, my wife wouldn't have sex with me or there were no women available where I was. Um, sometimes the story of necessity, this is the story that is kind of the official line in the military about some of these uh, initiations is that this kind of contact between men is necessary to build endurance um, to kind of toughen up the male body that you know if you can put the male body the soldier's body to an extreme test by you know shoving something up his anus and making him endure that then you've kind of prepared him for the possibility of other forms of penetration shrapnel in the body or you've prepared him for possible penetration by you know the enemy should he be taken as a as a prisoner of war so um so that's one of the of the scripts. Another one is male bonding. This comes up a lot that, you know, men will um, describe, you know, jacking off together or other forms of sexual contact with one another is just kind of an extension of men being men together, um, which might seem at first like, oh, give me a break, you know, that's that's just called gay or that's just called bi. But when you look at male culture, um, it's much more acceptable for men to experience um, sexual arousal together than it is for men, you know, for women, I'm sorry. You know, men do that at the bachelor party, men do that when they go to the strip club. So this idea that, you know, men are sexual around each other and together uh, is not is not um, completely unfamiliar. And then the one that I found most surprising is and, and is the most pervasive is just the script that this isn't sexual at all. <laughs> you know, yes, I have my fingers in another man's anus or yes, my hand is wrapped around his penis, but it's not about sex. It's about hierarchy, it's about dominance, it's about being a joke, you know, um, there are many different kinds of alibis that are intended to erase the sexual meaning of the contact. Mm. All these excuses to justify what we do, right? Exactly. And and I think there's been a long-held belief that, you know, this is more common amongst teen boys and young men than, say, men in their 30s and older. Uh, what did you find? Is this something that continues beyond the youthful years? It is, yeah. I mean, when boys are young, this is precisely when we might understand their same-sex contact to be experimental or young boys, you know, can get away with that kind of claim. And I'm not saying it isn't experimental, but I think in a way all human sexuality is experimental. We don't really know um, whether we're going to like it or how it's going to be until we do it. And we continue to experiment, in, you know, through our lifetimes. But, but 
but this the legitimacy of this experimental claim um, diminishes as men get older. It's harder to make that argument or to draw on a developmental script like, well, I'm just practicing for my future as a straight person with my buddy over here. Um, and so this is why the other kinds of scripts I describe in the book, I think, are become especially important for older men. Older men are more likely to understand their homosexual contact as necessitated by an external force, um, like lack of access to women. Uh, so older men to, who have accounted for why they've had sex with men will ex often say, well, I wanted to have sex with a woman, but um, my wife or my girlfriend was unwilling. Uh, sometimes straight men will feel like they can have a sexual encounter with another man and it's not cheating in the way that it would have been if they had sex with a woman. Um, but also I found that older men, um, in some of the personal ads that I, that I looked at online, personal ads that they would express a nostalgic longing for the experimental contact that they could have as a boy or that they did have as a boy with other boys. And so it's not necessarily that that impulse isn't there. It's just that the availability, you know, if you're not in school, if you're not in, um, on a sports team or the other, the other kinds of all male contact or all male environments that youth facilitates, um, that may not be available to you. And, and a lot of men describe missing that. So how's the media helped create these scripts? And you talk in the book about, uh, hump day and then shows like jackass, uh, how yeah. are they, how are they making it easier? Gosh, the question about the media is a huge question, but I'll just, uh, you know, in, in thinking about the representation of straight men who have sex with men. Um, so for male characters of color, um, uh, I'm thinking about black and, and Latino characters on, on television in particular, homosexual touching or intimacy is almost always subsumed into a bi or gay or down low story. Um, so any kind of homosexual contact for a character of color or a male character of color means that probably he's, you know, there's then going to be a story about how he has to come out as having a particular kind of queer identity. Um, but for white male characters, really intimate sexual touching is sometimes represented in TV and in, in uh, Hollywood films as a gag, a stunt that, you know, ultimately has no consequences for the actors. And so Jackass is a perfect example of that. You know, these are, um, this is this kind of prankster reality TV genre um, where these men will just do extreme, there is kind of like extreme sports, um, extreme tests of the body. And often that involves touching each other's testicles, touching each other's penises, you know, mm -hmm. putting things in each other's butts. And it's, you know, um, again, presented not as sexual, but as a funny joke. Um, I think we can see the extension of this in the whole bromance genre, which uh, is a very white 
dominated. It's a white male dominated genre. So often you'll have two white dudes who are paired together. They're straight identified dudes and all of the, um, emotional intimacy in the film, even if there are women in the film is between those two dudes, but often there will be extended scenes of homosexual or homoerotic touching between these two friends. And it's usually the comedic high point of the film. We're invited to laugh at it. It's awkward. Sometimes it's an accident. Um, sometimes, there's, sometimes there's this complex situation that allows the white male characters to, get to, to, to end up touching each other. And again, you know, for those white male actors... They can do that without anyone um, suggesting, oh, you know, he might, he must be gay or bisexual that he played that role uh, because we understand it as a joke. But the stakes are much higher for actors of color who um, really, I think, uh, their masculinity and sexuality is still quite heavily scrutinized. And so that kind of sexual play on TV is just often not something that they can afford to do. Well, the book is called Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. It's a fantastic read. And we've been talking with Jane Ward, who is the author. Jane, thanks so much for sharing your your thoughts with us. And uh, tell us where people can go to get the book. Yes, it's available on Amazon or at the NYU Press website and it's available in um not only in print copy but also audio uh audiobook and kindle perfect thanks so much for being with us tonight thank you for having me and that brings us to the end of our hour my thanks to my two guests tonight tanner white and jane ward for being with us i'll be back next week with an outbeat extra and the 2016 pride celebration from the fountain grove lodge that's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.